So if you have a Bible this morning, let's open up to John chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 as we carry on in our months-long study through this gospel account, taking it verse by verse by verse by verse by verse. And so what we're doing this morning is we're just taking the next chapter up and we're drawing from the text called exegeting, expositing, drawing from the text and applying it to our life. And as you're opening up to John 15, 1 through 11, let me tell you a story. For the past three years, the past three seasons, I have coached Ellie Grace's rec league soccer team. And over time, as we have practiced, as the players have fumbled their way through playing their first ever games, I've always get players who have never, ever played before. It's kind of fun, actually. Even through losing several games, which happens frequently, we've lost a lot of games, especially this season, heartbreaking games by one goal. It's fun to see as a coach the players improve, and it's fun to watch their confidence grow as the team kind of comes together. I don't have to do it, but they give us such like generic names that what we always do is we always pick a mascot, and it's usually based around our uh, uniform color. So the first year we were the Pink Panthers, last year we were the Green Vipers, this year we're the Purple Pumas, the Mighty Purple Pumas. We've, we have two games left, Monday and Tuesday, we'd love for you to come out and cheer my girls on, we need a win. And as, as I coach my girls, I, I tell them a couple of things. I tell them that I expect them to play hard. I tell them that I'm going to coach and I'm going to challenge them that I want to bring out the best in them. As you can imagine, I get a little animated on the sideline in my coaching. And I have to tell the girls, I said, when I am speaking in a loud voice to you, I'm not yelling at you. I'm coaching you because I love you and I want to see you do well. And so I want to make sure that you hear me. I want to make sure that you can hear my voice, especially those of you who have never played before. I want you to know that I'm right there with you. And I'm just going to coach you along. And I know you're figuring this out, and that's okay. And I'm glad that you're here. The thing that I, I tell them is, I, I'm going to coach and challenge you. I want to bring out the best in you. But that win or lose, there's two things that are true. Number one, we are still friends. And number two, I love you. And I love being your coach. Those are the, the two things that I want you to know throughout this whole thing. And every good coach wants to see his players grow and develop. The end game is always in mind. And losing, adversity, injuries, not always getting your way, it's, it's a part of the process. And the shared team and mascot and colors that we pick, the connection to the coach, connection to each other, and the shared experiences on the field, win or lose, bind that team together over the long haul. And all of that works to help the team bear fruit on the field. And what do I want to see my girls grow in? If you've ever played on a team before, you know how this works. As a coach, I want you to love the game. I want you to get to know the game better. I want to see your skills improve. I want to see you grow in your sportsmanship. I want you to learn how to encourage one another and to enjoy being together, enjoy being a part of a team. I know that college scouts are not coming to my under-13 girls' soccer matches, although some parents act like it. We've got a, a ref in here who's shaking his head. He's like, yeah, I know. My, my job is to begin developing players that will one day be coached by middle school coaches, by high school coaches, and hopefully maybe one of these days by a college coach. I know my role in all of this. I get these girls who have never played before, and I don't want to come down harshly on them. I want, to, I want them to love the game, 
And I want them to grow in their skills so that eventually another coach will come along beside me and then another coach will come in after him and another coach. And who knows who the Lord might use. Some may never play soccer again. I hope it's because I hadn't fussed at them. But, but again, my prayer is that one day they will look back on their time on my team with fondness and remember the ways that they grew as people out on the pitch. That they enjoyed learning this game and enjoyed being together. And last week we looked at a passage where Jesus told his disciples that he was going away and that there was going to be kind of like a coaching change. The promise of the Holy Spirit making their home with them. And they knew what life was like under the outgoing coach as Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going away. And they were afraid that they would be left alone, that they would be orphaned, that they would be left without someone to walk with them and without a home. And those same promises that Jesus spoke to his disciples still apply to us too. We're also Christ's disciples. And Jesus told them not to be afraid and not let their hearts be troubled. Remember, we've talked about this Greek word that shows up in John's gospel a lot, the Greek word terasso. Don't let your hearts be stirred up or troubled. Jesus constantly says, don't let that be. Rest. Rest in me. Jesus told them not to be afraid. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was going to come and live with them and teach them and grow them. But what does that growth look like? What's that growth look like? Let's see if we can find out. Look at John 15, 1 through 11. I am the vine. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear even more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I'm thankful for that. May we ask the Holy Spirit as we seek to receive this word by faith. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us to figure out life on our own. You've given us your word. You've given us the Holy Spirit. You've given us each other. And Lord, as we come to this text this morning, we pray that you would take these words, seal them, apply them to our hearts, O Lord, as we long to know you more. We pray and ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Okay, as we start looking at this very familiar passage, there's a couple of questions that we all need to ask that are really important. Does my life bear the fruit of the Spirit? Am I growing in my faith, even just a little bit? What really defines me, what really defines me is the most important aspect of who I am, if I'm honest with myself. What is the thing that really defines me? Do I actually want to grow in my faith? Do I want to grow as a Christian? As you think about those questions, let's answer a few more questions this morning or ask a few more. What does it look like to grow as a Christian? What enables it? What should we look for? What does this process of growth look like? 
If you're a note-taking type of person, we're going to look at three points this morning. If you're taking notes, we're going to see, number one, the source of our fruitfulness. Number two, we're going to see the process to our fruitfulness. And thirdly, we're going to see the goal of our fruitfulness. So the source of it, the process of it, and the goal and the end result of our fruitfulness as we think about the vine and the branches. So let's look at the first point this morning, the source of our fruitfulness. Last week, Jesus spoke about the new relationship his disciples would have with him through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And now, as this discourse continues, Jesus further describes this relationship through the metaphor of the vine and branches. And this was not an accident. As we've seen throughout, Jesus is constantly taking something that was very familiar in the life of of ancient Near East, and he is then taking it and applying it and showing how he fulfills it. In the Old Testament, Israel was referred to as a vine. Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5 bring this up. And here's what Kent Hughes said about the importance of the vine in Israel. He said, The grapevine was a symbol of national life. That emblem appeared on coins minted during the Maccabean period. Their regard for it resembled our regard for the stars and stripes. So precious was the symbol to the Jews that a huge gold grapevine decorated the gates of the temple. As you can see, the idea of a a grapevine or the vine was a big deal back in Jesus' day in the ancient Near East. It was almost like a, a flag of national pride. The vine was, was a, a symbol of that pride, similar to the water ceremony and the temple illumination ceremony that we've already looked at. Jesus again refers to something important in the life of Israel and shows how it ultimately points to him. And in verse 1 of this passage in chapter 15, we see Jesus' seventh and final I am statement. And he said, I'm the light of the world and I'm the good shepherd. Now he says, I'm the vine. He says, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And so we think Christ is kind of like the trunk of the vine. We are the branches, and God the Father is the vine dresser or the gardener. And the picture taken together is that of a vineyard with true believers organically related to Christ. The sap that runs in his veins runs in ours as well. The life gets drawn and kind of spread out through the plant. And we see a picture of the Father walking among the vines, lovingly caring for them so that they'll bring forth forth fruit by the power and purposes of the Holy Spirit. So again, you see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all working together. And as with every other I am statement of Christ, there's a deeper meaning. Again, here's what Kent Hughes said. He said, the force of his words were, you all know how Israel is pictured as a vine and that is meant to produce refreshing fruit. Well, I am the fulfillment of all that symbol suggests. He says, I'm that guy. I'm the vine. And so what we're asking, what does that look like? Now, the core doctrine that's on full display here, that is a super important doctrine for you to know about, is the doctrine of union with Christ. Union with Christ. It is an incredibly, incredibly important doctrine for you to understand. The Westminster Confession, our doctrinal statements in the PCA, has a big, huge kind of section on it about the importance of the union with Christ. We actually did this as a Wednesday night study where we went through Sinclair Ferguson's multi-week kind of um, teaching series where we look specifically at this doctrine. Here's what Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan, said about this doctrine. Being in Christ and united to Him is the fundamental constitution of a Christian. Union with Christ. The word Christian, we constantly, we kind of use now, we say like, I'm a Christian. 
that word actually only appears three times in the Bible. In some ways, it's, it's often referred to as like a, a taunt where someone was called a Christian. We see that in Acts 11, Acts 26, and 1 Peter 4 is when the word Christian actually appears in your Bible. And it's, it's started as Christ's one, Christian, is kind of how that came into being. But the most common way that followers of Christ are referred to in the New Testament over 200 times in various forms or, or variations is the phrase, in Christ, or in Him. That is the most common way that believers in Christ are referred to, as being in Christ or in Him, well over 200 times. Again, here's what Sinclair Ferguson said. He said, this, our union with Christ, is the heartbeat of the Christian life. And here in John 15, Jesus is helping His disciples to understand what it means. They would be united to Him by a mutual indwelling. To have the Holy Spirit indwelling us is the equivalent of having Jesus Himself indwelling us, end quote. Jesus is using the imagery of the vine to teach us about a, a new reality that the Holy Spirit creates. The Spirit unites us to Christ by His work of effectual calling, regeneration, saving faith, repentance unto life. And that union allows us to draw upon divine resources to bear fruit for the Father's glory. And the Father then cares for the vine as the vine dresser. We, the branches, depend upon the vine, Christ, to produce good grapes, to produce spiritual fruit. So the source of our fruitfulness, and this is really important, the source of our fruitfulness is not the sweat of our brow. It is the, our life-giving connection to Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, this union with Christ. And that union is a gift of grace. It is not by the sweat of your brow that you maintain this. You are connected to Christ. You are united to the vine by grace through the work of the Holy Spirit as you draw upon divine resources for your strength and encouragement, but also to bear fruit. Romans 6.11 talks about this relationship and the ways that we could think about it. It says, You must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.3 For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Romans eleven seventeen. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. This is absolutely incredible news for us this morning. Because what that verse is telling us is that there's good news for Gentiles like us. That we have been grafted on by grace. Grafted on to the original plant, counted as part of the plant, counted as part of the, the vine. We've been grafted on. All of this is by God's grace. Think about it. We, the spiritually dead foreign branches, that's us, have been grafted on by grace, made alive by grace, are nourished by grace, and are kept alive by grace. It's the picture of the gospel. We're the dead branches. We're not the root. We're the dead branches over here that God has brought in and He has grafted on to the original vine and life has returned to those. That is the picture of the gospel. What once was dead has now been brought back to life by grace alone. It's amazing when you think about it. That's what makes the gospel good news. Again, we've said Jesus didn't come to make good people better. Jesus is not a self-help coach. 
Jesus came to make dead people live. That's why it's good news. That's why the gospel matters. Look at verses 4 through 6. It says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Do you notice that one word that's used over and over and over and over again? The word abide is the word that's used there. If you've ever seen the movie The Big Lebowski, you learn that the dude abides. And we see this word abide used over and over again. Here we see this word, the Greek verb meno, which means to dwell, abide, to stay, or to endure. And it's used 15, 15 times in this passage. So obviously it's important. But what does it mean to, quote-unquote, abide in Christ? What's that look like? Again, here's what Sinclair Ferguson said. He said, it means to live with the sense that the Son of God loves us and gave Himself for us, that He dwells within us by His Holy Spirit, and that we know that our life is now His, and we are no longer our own. So, what's it mean for us to abide in Christ? We need to remember and remind each other because we forget. That we have been given a new identity in Christ and it transforms the way that we see each other. It transforms the, what gives us worth and value. It transforms how we think about our families, our jobs, our grades. All of it is under the Lordship of Christ as we are united to Him and united to each other. It changes. It's a whole worldview shift. It's easy to sing songs where we sing, All I have is Christ or bought with the precious blood of Christ, but... It's really hard to believe that when hardship comes, doesn't it? But the question I want you to ask this morning is, what if that adversity and hardship was actually part of the process? What if it was actually part of the process? We see the source of our fruitfulness. It's our union with Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, our justification, we're united to Him. Key core doctrine. That's the source of our fruitfulness. Not the sweat of our brow, but by the grace of God. This new relationship. But now we see the process. This is our second point. The process of our fruitfulness or to our fruitfulness. If anybody's ever planted any vines before or really planted any plant at all, you know that they grow under the influence of soil, the sun, and the rain. But... Oftentimes, they're also, they also grow through the purposeful use of a pruning knife. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. If you've ever gardened, you know how important pruning is. On the surface, if you've never gardened before, it seems like useless destruction. Why in the world would you go and clip that plant? That doesn't make any sense. But to the gardener, the gardener knows that pruning is necessary for healthy growth and for a stronger plant in the long run. Unlike vine branches, though, we feel pain, don't we? And sometimes when God prunes, it hurts. We may ask, why is God doing this? Doesn't He care? Doesn't He see how much this hurts? It's a very honest question in the midst of trial. And we've all asked it. Lord, do you not see what's going on here? 
our Wednesday night study, we've been going through the book of Job, the Old Testament book, and you have these questions constantly. Lord, what's going on? What are you doing? Do you not see that this hurts? But when we remember that the heart of the vine dresser is always good and that his providence is always wise and holy, we have to remember that by deduction that his purposes are always good. God never makes a mistake. And, through his, and though his ultimate purposes may be hidden from us, not a single pruning snip is wasted in your sanctification. Not a single snip. And as many of you have, have grown, that's why it's good for us to talk to saints who are older than us. That's the beauty of living in a church community. We're not all the same age. It's good for us to go and to hear what God has done in the lives of others. And as we have seen, and as we're constantly reminded, the Lord has used times of hardship to grow us in unbelievable ways as we lean on Him. Ferguson said, By cutting away what hinders our growth, He makes us more like Christ and more useful in His service. But let's be honest. We don't like the word prune in this passage, do we? We kind of wish it wasn't there. Because what it means is that God intends to change us. And if we're honest with ourselves, we think we're fine right where we are. Thank you very much. I don't want to grow. I don't want to change. What do you mean? I wish that word prune wasn't in there. I wish it was more like God takes the plant, sticks it in the ground, and then walks away and just kind of let it, does, let it do its own thing. In many ways, though, that's not what we need. We need the work of sanctification. We don't like to come under conviction. That's why it's called conviction. I don't like it. We don't like to be called to give something up. Money, prestige, power, relationships, pornography, gossip, selfishness, etc., etc., etc. We don't like to be asked to give something up for the sake of our spiritual health and for the glory of Christ. We don't like to suffer. We don't like to be made uncomfortable. We don't like to be asked to surrender or alter our perfectly crafted plans. We don't like to be asked to give of our time, talent, and treasure for the sake of Christ and His bride, the church. We like to just be right where we are, thank you very much. I'm, I'm okay. I don't, I don't want to be stretched. I don't want to be changed. I definitely don't want to hear it from some young preacher who's old enough to, like, he's not even old enough to be my kid. What's that guy? He's meddling. We think, I don't, I don't like to be stretched. I don't like to be brought out and, and called into the fact that, you know, the Lord might be working here and that I need to change. We don't like to have our heart idols uncovered. I don't. We don't like to have heart idols like our politics, our sports teams, always having to be right. Physical fitness, academic achievement, physical fitness, having perfect children, whatever it is. We don't like those hard idols uncovered. We like to sit and pet them and say, man, this is the thing that gives me worth. Why? Because we live under the false assumption that our lives ultimately belong to us. And so we live as though we're not connected to the vine. We pretend that we don't draw each breath as a result of His divine grace. We pretend that we're self-sufficient. We pretend we don't need God. We pretend we don't need to change and grow. Rebellion against the God who purchased us back from the grave. That's what this is. We live in rebellion against Him. Here's a gut check. And I'm going to think about it too. What is the one thing that you're afraid God will take from you or ask you to give up for His glory and your ultimate good? What is it? What is that one thing that you're afraid that God is going to ask you to give up for His glory and for your good or take away from you? What is that thing? Whatever it is, that's your functional heart idol. 
That is the thing you're looking to. We think we're in control of it, but actually it controls us. Left unchecked, unchallenged, and unpruned, these things will kill us because they hinder our growth and they make us wither in the long run. They are false vines, they are false idols, they are false saviors. Here's what Duguid said. Sever the connection between the branch and vine and there will be no fruit. Sever the connection between the Christian and Christ and there will be no Christ-likeness. Did you pick up the warning in verse 6? Verse 6 is a big warning. Those not connected to the true vine by faith will ultimately face the holy judgment of God. And that, that judgment is usually referred to with the picture of fire. If you are here this morning and you do not trust Christ, I, as a minister in the gospel, would please urge you to heed this warning in verse 6 and to flee to Christ. His judgment is real. It is true. Flee. Repent of your self-salvation project. Turn from your heart idol. This thing that you think that will save you is like a boa constrictor wrapped around you and is slowly squeezing the life out of you. You think that you're in control of it until it's too late. Flee. Flee to Christ. Repent of your sin. Repent of the ways that you're trying to save yourself. If you are here and you say, I trust in Christ, but yet you are living fully apart from God, and you're saying, well, I just want to rest on this one-time prayer that I made forever, and then I just want to live my life however I see fit. Repent. We need to live our lives in accordance with the Scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as we're moving and growing. and The Lord wants to change us. The gospel that saves us is also the gospel that changes us over the course of our life. Sanctification is a part of the process. And sanctification is never easy because we don't get our way. But ultimately, it's for our good and it's for the glory of God alone. If you are here and you do trust Christ, thank Him for saving you from that wrath and for pouring out His blood so that you could have life and nourishment at His expense. This is why the cross and this table set before you this morning is so important. They are reminders of what Christ did for us. Think about it. What happened to Christ on the cross? He was pruned for us. He was cut off. And all of that wrath in verse 6 was poured upon Him so that you could have grace, so that you could take the table of grace and be reminded of Christ's body and His blood broken and shed for you. So it makes the gospel just absolutely amazing. We think that we come pre-wired and that we can get all this growth in and of ourselves and look at what I'm doing. You're the dead branch on the ground. That God in His wisdom and grace and mercy has picked up and grafted you on so that you could have life at the expense of His Son. Christ Himself was pruned. He was cut off. He was treated as a sinner so that you could be made a son and daughter. It's amazing when you think about it. It's the gospel. It's a reason to get up in the morning. Verse 3 is a wonderful promise. Those united to Him by faith have been made clean by the words spoken over them. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 reads, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Skip down to verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. 
You see, this is the banner that we rally around as Christians. The banner of His undeserved, unmerited love, mercy, and grace towards rebels like us. His banner over me is love. If you are in Christ, isn't that good news? His banner over you is love, not hatred, not wrath, not judgment, because of Christ. His banner over you is love, and He's brought you to His what? Banqueting table, right here. It's all set before you. So what's the goal of our fruitfulness? Third point. We see the source of our fruitfulness. It's not us. It's in Christ. The process of our fruitfulness. Sometimes the pruning comes. It's sanctification. It's for our good and for His glory. It's not always fun. But what's the end result? What's the payoff? What's the goal of our fruitfulness? Again, God has not left us alone to figure all this out. Galatians 5, 19-24. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, but, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to, Jesus, to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So what's that look like, to bear much fruit? Colossians 2.6, Therefore as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Colossians 3.12-16, Put on then as God's Chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called to one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So what's it look like to grow? The Word of Christ is the instrument of Christ used by the Spirit of Christ to nurture union with Christ and to transform us into the image of Christ. I didn't write that. Sinclair Ferguson did. I wish that I had. It's really helpful. Growth in our holiness involves us interacting with and putting into practice what God's Word tells us to do. Remember, we said last week, dusty Bibles lead to dusty hearts. But it's not about our white-knuckled, gritted-teeth obedience and moralistic rule-keeping. Again, here's what do-good says. Disciples are not connected to Jesus because they obey commands. The words of Jesus do the miraculous work of cleansing disciples and connecting them to Jesus. And then, having made them alive, He commands their obedience. We love, why? Because He first loved us. Why do we obey? Because of His grace and mercy. We obey because He already loves us. Not so that He will love us. You can't obey enough. Why do we obey the Word? Why do we listen? Why do we do all that? Because He loved us first. Because of His grace. It changes the whole way you may think about Christianity and flips it on its head. What if it's not about rule keeping? What if it's about grace? What if it's about Christ? What is the goal of our fruitfulness? It's for us to be conformed to the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and the glory of God the Father. 
John 10.10, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Look at verse 11, so that your joy may be full. Landing gears out. So what? Let's bring this thing in. How would your life be different if by the Spirit's work you had more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, more faithfulness, more gentleness, more self-control? How would your life look if the fruit of the Spirit were growing by, his, by that work, that divine work? I bet your life would look more joyful. We would probably all complain less, give each other the benefit of the doubt more, stop worrying about who gets the credit, be less angry and bitter. We may actually forgive old grudges. We may actually say, I'm sorry more. We may serve with open hands instead of closed fists. Basically, we would love each other more. <laughs> and we would grow together as we are knit together through Jesus. As we are knit to Jesus, we are knit to each other. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What would your life look like if you had a little bit more of the fruit of the Spirit? We pray and ask the Lord, Lord, make me more gentle. Make me more kind. Help me, Lord, to think less of myself. Help me to put others before me. You think about what this growth might look like. I want to offer something to you that I've been offering to you since the moment I set foot in this place as your pastor. I would love to meet with you one-on-one -on -one and talk about this. How you can grow in your faith. Practical ways, hear your story. That's our desire as your elders. We would love to see this happen in your life. Our desire is to ramp up discipleship in the new year. We want to be very proactive about seeing you grow and get connected and get related, especially as we come up out of weird COVID. We want to see y'all get together and around the word together. We want to see your faith strengthened. It is our job as elders in the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that you won't be tossed around by every wind and wave of doctrine. We want to see your faith grow. We want you to love Jesus more and more. That's our heart's desire. That's our prayer. That you would love Jesus more. The gospel would become more beautiful and believable to you. Back in 1975, a 21-year-old man who was married for only two months went to a new job. He wrote, After ten minutes of working in the sheet metal factory, my right hand was caught in sheet metal rollers. I intuitively, in an attempt to rescue my right hand, threw my left hand to try to pull the right hand out, and as a result, both hands were crushed. I screamed so loud that my ears rang from my own voice's volume. That industrial accident would kick off years of surgeries, painful recoveries, having to sleep with his hands above his head all the time, learning to flip pages of a book with a pencil eraser to get through grad school. He would also write, and I will be the debtor to that doctor for the first several billion years of eternity. The hand accident was really the turning point that made me reformed, and I entered the Presbyterian Church in America after that. You see, I know this man. His name is Reverend Joe Novenson, who was at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church just up the hill from us. And I spoke with him this week. And I'm here because of his humility and kindness. You see, years ago, when I was an embarrassed new campus minister in RUF who wanted to quit, I've struggled with that throughout my ministry, just feeling totally ineffective. Like, how, how is the Lord possibly going to use somebody like me? I was standing at the back of the room. I could not talk a single student into coming to RUF Summer Conference with me my first year. 
So I'm there all by myself. I've got no students with me. I'm looking around. Ole Miss has brought like half the state. Mississippi State, the other half. Auburn's there. Nebraska's there. All the big schools, they've got huge RUFs, leadership. They've got students, and they love it, and they're funny. And here I am standing in the back of the room, brand new campus minister, worked my tail off for a year and couldn't talk a single student, even if I gave them a full scholarship and gas money to come down to summer conference at Panama City Beach, Florida, of all places. I couldn't talk a single one into coming. I felt like a failure. I wanted to quit right then. And then I felt a tap on my shoulder, and it was Joe. And with all sincerity and humility, he looked me in the eyes and asked me if I would step outside and pray with him in the parking lot before he went in and preached. And he was about to preach to over a thousand college students about the work of sanctification, what we're talking about. He tapped me on the shoulder. Hey, brother, could you please come and pray with me? I'm nervous. It's Joe Novenson. I'm nervous. Would you please come and pray with me? And so we went out in the parking lot. And after praying for him, he looked me dead in the eye and simply said, Thank you so much for your prayer, brother. It means the world to me. I listened to every word of that sermon. And he's, as he recalled the details of his accident, he gave us all the most vivid illustration of what being connected to the true vine, this union with Christ, actually looks like after what felt like a vicious multi-year pruning. Joe is like, my hands don't work, and I'm having sleep above my head, and surgery after surgery after surgery. He gave me the most vivid illustration of this I have ever heard. I called him again this week just to make sure I had the details right. He said, my left thumb had to be amputated due to gangrene, and to restore and, in fact, rebuild my left thumb, they sewed it, they sewed it to my chest for six weeks, the chest fed the thumb, and eventually they built my left thumb out of the skin from my chest. He said, that's what union with Christ looks like. Being stitched to Christ and his life flowing into what was once dead. I'll never forget it. You want to know what abiding in Christ looks like? What once was dead has been stitched to Christ. And his life flows into what was once dead, and it is made alive. And it will be repaired. And it will be restored. And that is the hope of glory. Tell me you don't think that is not a central doctrine to your faith. And that it has absolutely nothing to do with you. You have been united. You have been stitched to Christ. And He will never let you go. Never. Don't you feel it? It's the gospel. That's a reason to get up. That's why I get animated. I will preach this till I die. It's the best news ever. Stop trying to do it all yourself. Stop. Stop. Put down the shovel. Stop. You have been stitched to Jesus. And His life flows into you. And He longs to grow you. And it might mean that you need to get over yourself for five seconds. It might mean that Jesus asks you to give up something that you think is so precious to you, but in the end is like a boa constrictor wrapped around your neck because He wants you to love Him. It's all for the glory of God the Father. Being stitched to Him by grace is the gospel. It's not your work. It's not your effort. It's not about you. Stop. Rest in the gospel. Some of y'all don't like that. I'm okay with that. Because that's what the gospel is. 
a call to get off the treadmill and to be stitched to Christ. And if you are here and you trust Christ, you thank Jesus for this, that he has done this for you. How do we know that he did it? Right here, ladies and gentlemen, the table that's set before you, where we see all that Christ has done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. And as we come to your table and we think about all that you have done, we, we who were once dead in our trespasses and sins, we've been made alive together with Christ. It's by grace we've been saved. Not by our works, not by our efforts, so that none of us can boast. The end result of all that you have done for us is us just singing out in doxology, praise God, from, home, from whom all blessings flow. Lord, as we consider all that you have done, you were pruned, you were cut off, you were cast aside so that we could be united to you. And so, Father, stir that in our hearts as we take this supper, reminding you, remind us, O oh Lord, of all that you have done on our behalf. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.